Hi, and welcome to the Grow Your Private Practice show, a podcast for counsellors and therapists. With me, Jane Travis, I'm an ex-counsellor that now helps other therapists to grow their practice and to attract more clients more easily. So let's get started. Hi, and welcome back. And if it's your first time here, I'm so glad that you found us. I hope you're okay. Now, today's episode is the fourth of a four-part mini-series where I've been talking with therapists in private practice that are autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, or a combination of these things. And today, I've got the fabulous Carly Radford with me, and she shares some of her experience of being in private practice whilst having both autism and ADHD. So in this episode, we talk about her experience of diagnosis, some of her misconceptions around autism. We talk about masking and hiding in neurodiversity. We talk about managing autistic burnout, the importance of her work surroundings, challenges around organisation, time management and getting stuff done. Yep, I get that. And she shares some great tips to try as well. So who is Carly Radford? Well, she says that she's an integrative psychotherapist who predominantly works with trauma, anxiety, high achievers, and more increasingly, neurodivergence. She is passionate about working with these difficulties through the lens of highly sensitive nervous systems, cultivating self-compassion and embracing our sensitivity to lead to more authentic ways of being in the world. Carly has a particular interest in supporting those at the start of their neurodivergent self-discovery and in working with neurodivergent business owners. So without further ado, let's get started. Molly, hi. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really, really great to speak to you. And I'm really looking forward to hearing sort of a little bit about you, about your journey, you know, and about what it's like for you being in private practice. So maybe to get started, you can tell us a little bit about, a little bit about you and maybe a little bit about diagnosis as well. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Jane. It is my first time on a podcast, so this is all very new and interesting to me. I will go gentle mm-hmm. with you. Yeah, so my background and I guess diagnosis journey, it's only at the start of this year that I've had an ADHD diagnosis. Um, and about 18 months ago was my autism diagnosis. And before the autism diagnosis, I'd started to I guess, sort of self-identify as potentially being autistic about a year prior to that. Yeah. Um, and before that, oh. Sorry, Sorry, I was just going to say that's quite late for a diagnosis, is it? Or is that, or, or are people getting diagnosed later on in life these days? It is late for a diagnosis in the sense that traditionally people have historically been diagnosed in childhood. Mm. But... In terms of the, the history of the recognition of various sort of neurodivergencies, it's changed a lot over the years. So now more and more adults are starting to uh, realise their own yeah. sort of neurodivergence and then seeking assessment. So I think there's more and more late diagnosed yeah. um, adults. And whilst this wasn't part of my journey, I know for a lot of people, it's when their children get a diagnosis that they yeah reflect upon themselves and maybe realise that they might be too. So, yeah, that, that's a story I've heard quite a lot. When people, when the when the children get go for diagnosis, then it all starts to make sense. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Whereas for myself, I can't even fully pinpoint, I guess, where it came from. I have a rough idea, 
Uh-huh. Um, but there is no sort of one specific moment that jumps out from when I sort of suddenly start to think it. I do recall a number of years ago, I wondered uh, whether I might be. I remember researching it online on the traditional Conlet NHS website, find yeah. it lists sort of what it is. And I didn't really identify with any of it. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, oh, right now, I don't identify with any of that. So yeah. I forgot about it and get out of my mind until many years later. So what were the sort of, I'm going to say symptoms, but symptoms make it sound like it's a, a, a medical condition, doesn't it? But what, what sort of things were showing, what made you sort of question that? I think looking back, when I very first when it first sort of popped on my radar, it was when I was working at Kilns, and as a Kilns nurse, and I was in a part of the assessment sort of team. And when I first joined, I think I had to do like an autism awareness. So uh-huh. of course, looking back now, it was quite basic. Um, but right at the very end of the course, they had a, a small section on autism in girls. And... Uh, really, it was very insufficient, the, the information, but I got it at the time. But there was a few things in there that I remember at the time thinking, oh, oh, that's, that's interesting. And uh, they largely spoke about how, you know, young girls are quite good at masking and about copying and therefore diagnosis, things getting. So yeah, I think that was the first thing that I thought, oh, I struggle with things like that. Oh, I remember finding that really difficult uh, when I was younger. And, They've just kind of said that it can present differently, but they didn't really go too much into it. So that was when I went away, looked online, but straight away thought, oh no, I don't really. There was things like the very stereotypical things, such as really struggles with imagination, whereas, you know, quite imaginative and always helping. Um, and the other sort of common stereotype of struggling with empathy and lack of empathy. Um, and, and the way it spoke about sort of rigid adherence to sort of routines and repetitive behaviours and you know those key things that I just saw and thought oh no I don't I don't sort of recognise any of those traits within myself and so that's when it got put out of my mind um until I need to date yeah Uh, but yeah in terms of the traits that you were asking about I think how it came about and there's a part of me that I'm slightly embarrassed to admit it, but I'm going to share it because I am pretty confident other people will have had this thought and presumption too. Okay. But I remember being in one of the Facebook, therapist Facebook groups, and there being some sort of a comment, I can't remember what it was, or post that was about autistic therapists. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, well, how, how, can a therapist be autistic? Because my understanding of autism when I looked at it is this lack of empathy. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes sense to me how a therapist would then, oh, how would, how would an autistic person be a therapist? Now, when I think about that, that was my thought. I'm actually quite, I was going to say horrified that that was my thought, but that's not entirely sour in myself. It was my thought based on the information that I had on the, at the time. Yeah. But I was a therapist at the time and that was my... That was my thinking and that was my thought process. And I guess that makes me think about how much sort of neurodivergence and neurodiversity just wasn't a feature of my course. Actually, yeah. I've even done courses um, through my job as a nurse and yet this was my sort of understanding. Yeah. Quite worrying, actually, that that was the level of knowledge that I yeah. had. Yeah. However, that 
piqued my curiosity because I'd discounted myself as potentially being autistic based on these stereotypes. And now I was seeing things that kind of flew in the face of those stereotypes. And, and I looked at the comments on that post and I think somebody else might have alluded to a similar sort of thought in a comment that they may have put. It was, um, what am I trying to say? It wasn't like an offensive comment or anything. I can't remember how they worded it. But essentially, somebody else had put a comment up, and so more information had been provided. And I think somebody had said, specifically Google, like autism in presentation in women and girls, and look at content from that has been created by autistic women and girls. And so the moment that I followed that train, I was plunged into a variety of rabbit holes, uh-huh. and I didn't come up for air for about a year. <laughs> Oh, that's familiar. That sounds familiar. Wow. All I did from that point on, it probably became a bit obsessive, but was read things, watch things, research things, all in relation to it. Because the moment I looked at it, started to look at it from that perspective, read things by other autistic women and girls, the more it was just that light bulb, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In terms of traits and things. And yeah, I had to entirely relearn and restructure everything that I thought there was to know about autism. I think that I thought was incredibly wrong. That's interesting, is it? So is it to do with the fact that being female is you present differently? Is is that the big thing there? So what I've learned since is that people can tend to talk about how autism presents in men and in women as as quite separate sort of thing. Um, And I think it can be helpful to think of it from that perspective in terms of how it can be different. Um, But I've also seen some challenge to this, which I think is fair, that the same same can can also be true in men in the sense that men can also present very differently from their typical view as well. So I think that's sort of worth thinking about that, I guess, no matter sort of your your gender or higher origin, it can present really very differently from stereotypical view. But yeah, specifically in in women and females, they can, I I guess, maybe sort of mask it better as I see the research says. And so it can be, I guess, hidden away, which is really quite sad at the same time. It's really interesting, isn't it, how women and girls present with ADHD or autism this the the kind of masking it I think as women and girls we're so used to masking and trying to be something else and I'm saying this I'm I'm an adopted person so I am a real chameleon so I'm really you know I I kind of do that a lot myself but it's really interesting you know the difference between the genders there as how women and girls from quite a young age are trying to fit in I guess or some, and I mean, you know, I don't want to be, you know, big stereotype. What am I saying? Yeah, we are all different. All women and all girls are different. But it's interesting that there's a similarity there that a lot of people will try and, and hide it. Yes. Yeah, I think there's there's more of that, but I guess, social sort of pressure on yeah. young girls where maybe those peer relationships are and fitting in. Uh, are you know are kind of really important and I think uh, masking as a term in general you know all human beings mask it's not exclusive to neurodivergent uh, people however it's a whole other level I think if you are ND yeah. in terms of you know 
really having to, I guess it's not just about fitting in. It's also about like great hiding thoughts of yourself that you maybe come to associate with feeling ashamed about. Yeah. Oh yeah. Not wanting to be ostracized or seen as odd or, or kind of seen as different, which, you know, as, as we know, then starts to create a real tone. Yeah. So you spent a long time going down the rabbit hole and exploring and finding out and what do you think might have changed for you then as a re- as a consequence of that? What did that sort of bring to you? It started to reach a point where I felt like I needed to make a decision in terms of is the knowledge I've gained sort of enough for me to just know in myself that I am autistic or do I feel that I need an assessment uh, to, I guess, kind of have it sort of confirmed? Yeah. You know, I very much believe that sort of you know, however you want to phrase it, self-diagnosis, self-identify, sort of self-discovery is all is all kind of very valid. But it, it started to become, I guess, yeah, I am going to sort of use the word obsessional in that I, I couldn't sort of let it go yeah. until I knew for sure. And it wasn't the ping-ponging back and forth, am I on to, am I on to, am I on to, I just said, okay, I now need to hand this information I've gathered to another individual, another professional, and ask them what they think because I just I couldn't land anywhere myself. Yeah. And then I thought that it would um save me from this headache of constantly going back and forth and doubting myself, which is when I, I went for an assessment. I did have the privilege of going privately for that assessment. I did initially go down the NHS route. And when I knew how long the waiting list was, I thought, I'll sit with this. Yeah. Am I on time lay on time for two, three? years and so I figured out a way to go privately um and yeah I then sort of received the diagnosis and I would love to say that it stopped the ping-ponging but you know what it didn't (laughs) okay (laughs) I guess one thing that I learned that I have learned it it certainly reduced the questioning but I always still question up all the time yeah it, it's still a constant, well, maybe they got it wrong, but did yeah, they have? Yeah. It's having another assessment. But then I thought, then I'd need to have a third for statistical relevance. <laughs> and, um, so I needed to ultimately come to some sort of reconciliation within myself that, okay, one professional's opinion is that I am. I relate a lot to everything that I've been reading. So I've come to, I've come to the resolution that I am, but it doesn't mean I don't have doubts or autistic imposter syndrome, worry if I'm autistic enough, worry if I'm appropriating, worrying if I'm taking something away from those with higher support needs. I've not found my way fully through that yet. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you're right. I think, you know, I think in, in my head, it's like you get, a, you get a diagnosis and it's like the heavens sort of open and you get this hallelujah prayers and it's like, yeah, my life's going to be different. Now I know who I am and that all of a sudden you're going to have the answer to everything. And I guess it's just not like that in real life, is it, unfortunately? Yes, I think that's what I expected. And I think that's what I've read of other people's experiences of of diagnosis. And that sudden sort of relief, that knowing, oh, everything sort of in my life makes sense. And now I just get to understand myself through this new land. And I did experience those things, but it it didn't fully take away from the the questions and um, from sort of the doubt. Um, but perhaps just due to due to the stereotype, you know, due to what we see represented represented in the media, um, I guess there is still 
a long way to go in seeing representation for all different types of yeah. you know, autistic yeah. individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I think it's changing. I think it'll be quite a, w- a while until it becomes more um, mainstream, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So once you got your diagnosis, what change did it make to you? Uh, it's really hard to quantify that, actually. Okay. A, um, you can have two sentences if you <laughs> I would say it paved the way for more self-compassion. Yes, yeah. Rather than feeling bad about myself or a failure in certain areas or that self-critical voice, yeah. I would definitely say it paved the way for much more sort of compassion for myself which paved the way for more accommodations, which paved the way for me having more boundaries and being able to say what I need or say no. I've probably changed quite a lot of how I interact with other people, how I interact with the world, how I interact with work. It's been a long process. And giving myself permission to really engage in the things that bring me joy and not feeling bad or kind of silly or self-indulgent, maybe, that those things actually support my mental health and well-being. It's hard to quantify because it it kind of seeps into everything. Yeah, yeah. In lots of kind of different ways, really. So it's made a real difference to you then? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It changed my understanding of, of a lot of different things. And I think it was about... Not long after that diagnosis, that I started to wonder about ADHD too. I watch a lot of um, autistic YouTubers, and there seemed to be quite a, a correlation between uh, people later realizing that they are both. And um, this is just a thought of mine, but kind of based on training and interactions with other people. I think having both is a lot more common than what we realise. There is one study that suggests up to 80% of autistic people also have ADHD. Really? You know, which I appreciate up to is quite an arbitrary figure, but, you know, if that's, that's it's a lot. high, it's not, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I hear things from people now arguing whether they're even different things or, or different representations of the same thing. Um. I think it's quite interesting to to ponder some of these questions that we don't actually yet have a lot of answers to. Um, but once I've, I found out that there, that there is a potential high correlation between having both, that is when I went down the assessment route for, for that too. Um, and finding out that I was both was quite helpful because sometimes I didn't fully identify with people who, you know, were kind of, how can I phrase it? pure ADHD, like solely ADHD, and people who are like solely kind of like or, or autistic, but I sometimes wasn't fully kind of identifying with both. But once I started reading about and connecting with people who had both, again, it's kind of like, oh, okay, this really describes my experience of how sort of I interact with, with the world. And it, again, it just seemed to fit. Yeah. Yeah, which kind of sent me down uh, that route as well. Even more rabbit holes. More rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. then I've repeated the process. Yeah. <laughs> so you've had quite an interesting time learning all this and learning about yourself and and finding out how you know what's what's the right way for you to live your life in the you know as the person that you are. Yeah, it, it has been a real 
Yeah, journey, challenge, interesting sort of couple couple of years, but yeah. there seems to be quite sort of a common joke and recognition that 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 almost the way we approach our potential neurodivergence almost confirms our neurodivergence. You know that I've spent two years in rabbit holes collecting data, collecting yeah. and trying to figure all of this. It's, it seems to be quite a common experience. Yeah. Oh, bless you. It sounds like it's really been quite a a journey. Has it been a difficult journey or has it just been an interesting journey? It's definitely been difficult because, as I said, I think sometimes it probably bordered on maybe a bit like obsessive. Yeah. In the sense that sometimes it like literally consumed all of my waking thoughts and and all of my time, like it would be kind of all I was doing. Yeah. Um, And so I think, I think I did start to get. In fact, after I had my autism diagnosis, I actually stopped consuming anything to do with autism for a while. I think I'd reached a point where I got it and then it was yeah. like, I can't actually absorb any more. Yeah. I've done so much of it. And so I would say that it was quite difficult, but there also were times, I, I guess it became a special interest and it still is. There were real moments of like joy. I also took a lot of pleasure in going down the rabbit holes too and com- and in compiling the, the research. And there were all sorts of things. I, I, I got out all of my childhood thing videos and I mean, my memory of my childhood, my memory is rubbish. So, you know, I knew I'd be, ex- be questioned on my childhood experiences. And so I got out videos and kind of watched them, which was interesting, and then looked at photographs Quinn parents spoke with people that knew me. So yeah, it was real detective work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, I love it. You really did get but I suppose if you're ADHD, I mean that's what that's what we do, don't we? With ADHD, you go down rabbit holes and you 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 sort of really do get into things, don't you? Yes, yeah. Well get once we get sort of get into that hyperfocus, it's hard to hard to get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So as a cat, I mean, you're in a private practice now. And I think what what I've sort of, what in this little podcast series, I'm kind of looking at people with different, you know, people that are neurodivergent and, you know, in different ways. And everybody's different as well. So you'll be different to everybody else. So I'm wondering really, you know, having this diagnosis and being neurodivergent, I'm wondering, is it really, when it comes to running a practice, what that means for you? I mean, does is that worked? Has worked? That worked out in a very positive way? Is it more of a negative thing and a challenge? How how does it feel for you? I guess my answer to that would kind of be both, in terms of it being positive, but there still being challenges, and um, that you know some of them have kind of worked to overcome or impact me less and other things are still very much a work in progress. I think a lot of what I've tried to do has come from my past um, experience. So before I was a therapist, I was a nurse and I had in my 10 years of nursing, I had 11 different nursing jobs. Well, and also in had many side hustles, unsuccessful side hustles on the side. Like what? What sort of side hustles? Oh, all sorts of, lots of arts and crafts stuff that I was going to sell. I was sometimes a bit of a sucker for them, multi-level marketing. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Like forever living. So a bit of an entrepreneur side too, yeah. Yeah. So I guess there is. Yeah. 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 But, But never that sort of really took off in any sort of specific direction. 
and but I was also Thursday night working as a nurse at the same time. And I've been to uni three times and I have three degrees. And so my history is really one of doing lots of different things and lots of chopping and changing uh, jobs. And I, I've come to sort of understand that now through kind of two different cycles. So I'd say one is sort of with my, like the ADHD lens of that kind of internal hyperactivity. So I sometimes joke that I never got out of that like four-year-old phrase of constantly saying like, why? If I question everything all the time and I have a real drive to learn and obtain sort of knowledge. Yeah. And so I think when I start a new job, there's that novelty and the excitement and all these things to learn. And then I think it reaches a point where when I kind of know how to do the job and I know most things to get the job done well, I think then I won't get bored. Yeah, yeah. And I want a new challenge. And so I think that's partly one of the reasons why I've had so many different types of jobs. And uh, in nursing, it's quite common that people will change and do different nursing jobs, but certainly not the 11 jobs that I seem to have somehow wrapped up. And the second sort of part of that I think through the autistic lens is, so I, I used to believe that I struggled with depression because about every 12 to 18-ish months, like clockwork, I would have to go off sick from work for a treat. Mm. And I think, I used to think, okay, well, I have depression and then every 12 to 18 months I get depressed and I have to go off and I would usually struggle to return to work and I'd start to, again, sometimes switch careers. I'd think, well, it must be due to the job, I'm tired, it's stressful, I'm overworked, I don't like it. It was quite, it's not unusual in nursing for people to get burnt yes. out. Yeah. So it didn't seem like it was out of the ordinary, but I was aware that I certainly experienced it more than other people. And I would sometimes wonder what it is about me. That means I can't just stick in a job. Why do I have to go off sick? Um, but it's only later down the line that somebody, once I started to look into potentially being autistic, that I came across autistic burnout. And I remember watching a YouTube video that was all about autistic burnout. And that was one of those realizations where I thought that was what it was. Yeah, yeah. True. Um, wow, this is me. This is me. Yeah. 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 So I could cope with the demands and with the stress and with the overworking and the pressure, cope and cope and cope and cope, but only for 12 to 18 months where I then have to go off for a long period, totally rest and recuperate and then almost sort of start the cycle again. So um, that's a specific um, autism thing, is it? Yeah. Autistic burnout. Uh -huh. Um. And it's just that all the ways in which, you know, it can be much more prone to experiencing burnout and yeah, needing a longer period of recovery. And you know, for some people, it can last a really, really long time. But it, it, now that I look back, I can, it, I can see that it wasn't depression. It never really felt fully like depression. You know, I have experienced depression once before and it was never the same as that. It always felt different. Whereas, so yeah, as soon as I understood it through this lens of sort of autistic burnout, it kind of really made sense on why the pattern just kept repeating. Yeah. Because I'd end up just resting, but then doing the same because uh, there's no real job in nursing where you're not overworked. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, where there's yeah, difficulties. So when I then decided to 
So I was working part-time as a nurse and part-time as a therapist in private practice. Um, and when I decided to sort of take the risk, take the plunge and leave my nursing job and try and do this full-time, um, a big part of that was A, because I-, I loved what I was doing and I wanted to do more of it. And B, I wanted to work for myself and see how I could sort of kind of describe it. I was curious, I guess, how I would cope and manage setting my own schedule and would I still have the same pattern? Yeah. You know, if I was kind of in control, obviously at the time I thought it was depression, but I just knew that the way I was working wasn't working for me and I tried so many different things over the course of that decade that I always ended up in the same place. So I thought, will this be different? Um, so yeah, and since going into private practice, um, sort of returning it back to your question of like the positives and the challenges that the positives have been, wow, I have done this job now for nearly three years and I've not left it yet. <laughs> well done. <laughs> been in a job. Um, and whilst I am craving some changes I want to bring different arms to my practice and offer and do different things that's one of the beauties of it action actually always keep it interesting and add bits and take bits away there's so much you can do in this line of work so I think that really plays into that sort of side of me that I can keep my core job but I can stop and I can change and I can do new projects so I think that really works well and yeah the fact that I've not sort of left Three years in says a lot when it's sort of the longest time I've been here. So something is working for me. But yes, it's also not without its challenges and challenges that I've tried to find ways to sort of work around. Yeah. Before we go on, I just I just wonder if I can ask you, you know, how do you manage burnout? You know, how what have you got self-care things in place? You know, what have you sort of found helps you with that? I think one of the things that has helped me most when it comes to burnout is I think everybody needs different things when they're in burnout, but I need to like really retreat from the world. Uh-huh. And I need like total rest. Yeah. And recuperation and really strip everything. I must just say no to everything. I need everything off the table. I need my diary to have zero things in it. Even something like just popping up for an appointment might feel like a, like a huge thing to do. Yes. Sort of starting all the way back from zero, engaging in the things that bring me joy that I like to do. So, you know, I might not leave the house for ages, but I might do engage in things like arts and crafts and various sort of hobbies, uh, but not high demand hobbies. So you kind of isolate yourself and just really focus on all the things that you really enjoy to be able to let go of some of that, some of that stress. Yeah, so it'd be kind of really like art. What I would probably, what I would do is I wouldn't try to paint a painting because it become about pressure and probably perfectionism, and it wouldn't be restful. But I would do an adult coloring book uh-huh. so I can engage with the creativity side, but without pressure. It's very easy. It's very straightforward. And then just over time, very slowly reintroducing new things and seeing how they feel. Yeah. Sometimes I run the risk of the moment I start to feel a bit better, starting to put too much things in again. Yeah. Just like, yeah, I'm better now. And then oh, yeah, I'm better now. Back then. to 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, really sort of carefully uh, monitoring that, um, yeah. checking in with how things feel. Um, but yeah, that is something that I've found in the past when I've struggled with low mood. I feel like 
that involves me needing to try to find ways to get out and engage in the world and connect to things that I find meaningful to kind of bring me out of a really sort of low mood. Whereas with burnout, I feel like that's more of a, a need to quote sort of retreat. Yeah. Um, and just sort of take care, take care of me and totally yeah. rest and more radical rest or something, you know, but extreme. So as as a practice owner, do, how does that fit in with your practice or does that happen less now that you're in control of your own business? Yes. So I don't think I have ever sort of been in like a full burnout since I've started my business where I've needed, actually I've not needed to do that. I'd say this is the first year where I might have got a bit close, but that's just due to various personal things that have sort of gone on this year around and that I've had to try to manage around work. And so this year, I got a bit worried this year that it might happen and how I would manage that sort of being self-employed. But in the summer, I took three weeks on. And then when I returned, as a couple of clients undid, I was like, I'm going to not fill the spaces and see how I cope financially. And if I need to take more on, like I can, but I'm going to see how I go. And I was quite lucky in that I've been able to get by with less clients than normal. Just just a couple actually made a big difference. But also I stopped working on any other interests or projects. I just did client work and I was quite strict. And at the moment I finished, I would I would stop. I would curl up on the sofa with a blanket. I've really got into fiction reading this year again, which I used to love. Um, and so I was just doing what I need, just a minute now. Yeah. Just what I need to do. And it, how, was it easy for you to give yourself permission to do that? Because I think sometimes we force ourselves to keep going. Is is that something that you struggled with as well? Yeah, I really, I can force myself to keep going. struggle a lot with letting, feeling like I'm letting clients down. And I need to be there about the impact on other people. Obviously, the financial side's huge. So yeah, the, the the pressure to keep going is high. But I also then think that I've had so many years experience of reaching this this sort of burnout and needing to be off. And I think knowing that self-employed work is different. So if you're in an employed position and you're off sick for like two to three months, you know, you still get um, sort of your paid sort of sick leave and support. And it just is really good for that. Um, whereas that's not that if you are self-employed, unless you're, you've been lucky enough, I guess, to build up sort of a pot of money, um, I wouldn't be able to take that amount of time off. Yeah. So actually I had to be real with myself that it was much better to just try to do what I needed to do. Um, but also it helped you be able to stay working because I would never be in a position where I'm carrying on working when I shouldn't be with clients. And so it was also about making sure that if outside of client work, I'm fully resting just on the sofa and reading my book and looking after myself, then with, I could be fully present with clients and still be present with clients, do my job well. Whereas if I carried on carried on that would then drop off the I also wouldn't want that either yeah and I think it's that thing when you're self-employed yes it would be great to have time off when you get sick and paid time off of course but equally very often when you go back to work you kind of just drop back into the deep end I think sometimes being self-employed 
you can be more in control of everything around work. You know, you can manage yourself of how many clients is it okay to have and manage your time off, manage your downtime. You, you can manage what, how you run that practice. So I suppose it's a bit, you know, there's pluses and minuses for both really. Yeah, no, I think that's very, very an excellent point. That, and when you, you do, if you have a period off or you do go back, you know, you can alter it to kind of what you, I guess, to, to kind of like what you need it to be. Then, you know, obviously, you know, the holding a mind a certain privilege that, you know, some people have or even kind of like that I have, it's not always possible to do your ideal kind of work schedule. And but just what and doing what it is that you can. And trying to be sort of boundaried with um, the time, you know, that you need to support yourself to kind of be able to um, be back to the usual sort of working hours that you would do. Yeah. yeah. So what would be, what other issues might you have as a, a business owner with autism? Well, from an autistic perspective, a couple of the things that I've been thinking about are, so my work environment is something that's quite important to me. So... I've since done a lot about what environment and the feel of the environment needs to be in order for me to be able to feel sort of relaxed and calm. And so that's thinking about my sensory needs. So I thought a lot about the lighting that is in my office. I thought a lot about, so the the monitors that I had before were quite old. And so it took me a while, but I saved up and I bought better monitors. So I had a better screen sort of quality because the, the visual aspect of what I'm looking at all the time is really important. And having certain things around me. So even if I don't always drink it, I always make a hot drink because there's something quite uh, grounding and safe about having my like, hands around like a warm drink. And they have various sort of fidget and stim sort of objects on the desk. Which, you know, when you sort of work online, you can quite easily just sort of hold in your hand out of view, which is quite nice. So I thought a lot about, I guess, the comforts and things that I need at work. And, you know, I'm lucky to be able to have, you know, an office space that I don't have to have my computer in my lounge or my bedroom or anything. And having that separation from work and life yeah. really helpful where I can shut the door. But one thing that's quite helpful is having sort of my desk and everything be organized uh, and be tidy uh, a challenge though is that I really find it hard to maintain that <laughs> sometimes I think this is a bit of the autism ADHD conflict in that I actually really thrive when things are really highly organized and tidy and I love organizing things so I could spend a lot of time creating a highly organized system but then I can never maintain the system yes. And then I'm working in chaos and I think that impacts my nervous system. Um, and then you can burn out. Yeah. And it was overwhelming to try to get back to how it was before. And it's not like the system I had before was simple. I've got, it's made something highly organised, so it's even more of a bigger task to get it sorted again. So these are some of the cycles of my myself. In. Yeah. So it's, it's like trying to keep all of those plates spinning. Of, yeah. Right, I need my desk tidy, but I can't over over tidy and over plan it because then that starts to does that is that right have I got that right but it feels a little bit like there's all different plates that you've got to spin in order to help keep the different parts of you feeling comfortable and and okay yes it's like the, the parts want sometimes very conflicting things and don't help one another so yeah definitely but I'd say actually actively thinking about 
what any in the work environment to be like and feel like. That's been really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Then I'd say the biggest challenge, if I had to sort of bring together the, the biggest thing that I struggle with, is getting around sort of executive dysfunction. I'd say the challenges that I have with my memory and organizing, planning, time sort of blindness, not knowing how long or short something's going to take. I, I sometimes think of it as what I find the hardest can is quite simply put as just getting stuff done. Yeah. But also yeah. getting it done in a timely manner. Yeah. And, and I would say that is probably the hardest thing as for me as a business owner. It, it's a really frustrating thing because things can just take me a really long time then to get done. And then within that, there's a lot of comparison to other people and how they manage to get done and achieve. And I should be able to do that. But I find that really difficult. One of the things that helped me a lot because I struggle a lot with task switching. So moving from client work to emails to my accounts to working on maybe a project that I want to do to meeting the colleagues to have and see provision. It has really helped me a lot to learn about monotropism. About what? Sorry. I think I'm saying it right. There's monotropism, monotropism. I don't know what that is. So it's a theory of autism that has been researched and devised by autistic researchers. And whilst a lot of people can think quite monotropically, it's quite common in autistic individuals. And I can explain it. Some, it what it what it essentially means is it's like your mind operates really well when you're driving your car on one track. And so it can focus amazingly well on that one thing or a very small number of things. But it is really difficult to lane switch or take the exit and go and do something else entirely. And so once I kind of understood that and it made a lot of sense with how I operate, it really helped me really to understand why I struggle with things like task initiation, also stopping tasks. And that's also sometimes referred to as autistic inertia. So difficulties with stopping a task once you're doing it and then difficulties getting out of that free state and starting a task but but also just task switching in general so I've now over time worked to change my diary so I used to do it where I used to try to like see clients and then then I'll do my accounts or then I'll start working on this project that I kind of want to start and it would be all, all of it all over the place and it, it would never work I would see clients and then I'd never do the other stuff or I'd really struggle to get started Whereas I've started to shift things around where like these days are my client work and all that is my one track for the day, client work. And whereas on another day, that is like my whole admin day or project working day. And I don't do any client work. I really restrict it to no client work on that day. Um, And that's really helped me to stay a bit more focused and concentrate on the things that sort of I need to do. Whereas when I just try to slot in or do a bit of my counts there in between those two clients and I do that there in between those two or I've got a bit of space, could just couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I get that. I mean, I guess, well, I, could, I really get that as well. So I think having big chunks of concentrating on something is very good. I mean, what other sort of practical things have helped you? Um, well, I guess scheduling. So with my diary and when I see clients I've had to do a lot of experimenting over the past three years with my schedule 
And also when I feel at my best self and making sure I see clients as much as possible within that window. Uh So when we feel the most awake, motivated, energized, brain is on point, (laughs) is the times within which I really try to see clients so that they get the best of me. Yeah. And, And so I've played around with when that is and scheduled clients within that. And I respond really well to regular scheduled sessions that at the same time, the same client in sort of every week. So having a bit of structure and routine and knowing who I'm seeing when really helps. And it's taken a long time, but really being boundaried with seeing clients with when it fits with what I need my schedule to look like and almost then planning where I can have a degree of flexibility for rescheduling and things like that and where kind of that can fit in so I can offer some flexibility. But at the same time, I always start kind of with myself and what I have space for, I have energy for, I have capacity for. I would say that that's probably been quite hard to start to do things that way. Yeah. Rather than when how I started my practice, which was very much totally at whatever clients wanted they got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's how it is. I think it starts off that you're just so desperate to get clients. Somebody phones up and says, yeah. will you see me at 10 o'clock on Friday night? And you go, yes, of course I will. And, you know, then you realise you're at the error of your ways. But I think we start off as like new counsellors and we're trying to fill our diary and it doesn't matter if they're all over the place. And I think with experience, you learn to make it fit more about, you know, fit you. I talk a lot about having, doing time blocking and really getting clear on when you want to work, when's best for you to work and making whatever your work pattern, whatever it is to fit in with you. And, you know, when you first start off, like I say, you're, you, you'll accept sort of anybody at any time. But as you get as you get going, you realise that it's not all about the client. It has to be about your needs and your wants as well. And it really has to be about your own self-care needs and making sure that you don't get burnt out, that you don't make yourself poorly, that you're working in a way that's best for you. Because it's only when you're doing that that you can actually give the best to your client. You know, mm. if you're not feeling okay, then you're not going to be giving the best service that you could. So it's, I think it's great that you've found, you're finding out about yourself, you've learned about yourself and you're working out like, you know, these are some of the ways that help me in my business to maintain a, a business that I'm going to carry on enjoying, that I'm not going to get bored in and I'm not going to get too over, you know, too burnt out in by maintaining my practice in a certain way yes yeah absolutely and I think that that really is what I learned I used to think if I organized it the way that worked best for me that I wouldn't have a full practice that nobody can nobody can do that everybody wants this nobody can do that and that's just not turned out to be true yeah yeah. Um, and that often what is I totally just agree with what you said that what then works best for me does end up working best for then the clients that can do those things, that can fit that, because then I can be, you know, my best self as much as humanly possible. And because providing, you know, just being the best therapist I can be for my clients is just something I really value and it's important to me in, yeah. in what I do. And I guess even just like in life, the more you think about, you know, filling your own cup, doing the things that you need to do for yourself, actually, the more you can offer to sort of other people 
And I've just learned that it's no different when you're running your own business. Yeah, yeah. It's just so vital to have robust self-care. And we don't always, it's like I say, especially when you're first starting out, you, you sometimes don't if you're a people pleaser or you put yourself second. But the more that you can really, ex, you know, learn about yourself and your needs and then make that happen, then it just works out better for everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. And I think finding ways to incorporate that sort of self-care. And I'd say for me, also being compassionate towards myself about the amount of rest and care that I need when I'm comparing myself to other people. Yeah. Or I would see that as a not as good as or not enough them. And I'm not saying I still don't sometimes, but also the self-care kind of not judging myself for how much of that I need in comparison to other people and giving myself, you know, permission to have it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So just before we sort of finish, I'm just wondering if you, if somebody's listening to this and listening to what you're talking about and thinking, well, wow, that sounds really familiar to me. What, what sort of advice do you think you might give them? I was thinking about sort of knowing what we were going to be discussing. I kind of wrote down a bit of um, a summary because when I was thinking about what I would maybe just talk to you about today, sort of on this topic, it's kind of made me realise that there is so much stuff that I could carry on talking to you about ages. So many things that as I'm now thinking about it, yeah, I wish we could carry on doing this for like another hour. Um, but I kind of put it down into a little bit of a summary about what my main sort of takeaways are. So I don't know if this will be helpful for people. I've learned that it's not myself that I need to try to fix it's the systems that I have in place. And if they're not working, it's not because I'm failing, it's because it's the wrong system and I need a new system. And so I try to think of everything that I do as a bit of an experiment. And if it doesn't work, it's not because I'm not trying hard enough or doing it in the right way. Okay, scrap that. Let's try sort of something else. Um, and also surrendering to the things that no matter what systems I have in place, or always just going to be a bit difficult for me. And can I just accept that, be compassionate to myself around that, um, and find ways to not battle against it, but work with it. Um, but for, for other people, if they relate or identify, and I think this could be true, whether no matter your neurotype really, is learning about your neurotype, because everybody is so different. Learn specifically more about yourself and what it is that you need, and then how you can best get that for yourself. What would you need to be in place in order for you to be able to facilitate that? So one big thing for me was I can't see as many people as what other people can. So what do I need to do? I need to get comfortable with having a high fee um, and various other things. So some of those things that you need then involve a lot of other workarounds and a, probably a lot of challenge, challenging sort of certain beliefs to enable you to do those things. But certainly working on then the compassion and not the self-criticism for the things um, that you do struggle with. Um, and maybe learning a bit more about internalized ableism as well and checking sort of with your own and how that's factoring into your critical voice. Um, experiment, trial and error. And the other two things I wrote down that have been massively helpful is connecting with other neurodivergent colleagues. Um, 
And I also got a second supervisor who is neurodivergent too. They have also been really supportive in helping me to facilitate certain changes and put certain things in place. Um, and the other thing that not many people might be aware of in terms of support that exists is the government's access to work scheme, um, which if people aren't aware of, if you do have uh, any type of chronic health condition, disability, any neurodivergence, um, even if you are self-employed or if you are employed, you can apply uh, for access to work through the government and they either pay for or partially fund with your employer any certain accommodations that you might need and that can take the place of technology and equipment or coaching. Um, and for some people, they even fund things like a virtual assistant for things that you might really struggle to get done in your business. Wow. Um, so that is also really useful for people yeah. to can you have a pain to apply for? I'm not going to lie, but it can be worth it in the end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Carly, look, thank you so much for coming along and talking to us. It's been really interesting. It certainly helped me. I've sort of learned a lot about self-care and self-acceptance. And I've learned a lot about you and your experience of, you know, being autistic and having an ADHD diagnosis as well, which it seems to be something that's happening more for people. So I think the more people learn about the differences and look into it and possibly get a diagnosis, then the more helpful it will be for them in whatever they choose to do in their life, really. So so thank you for coming and talking to us about that. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on, Jane. It's been uh, interesting to talk about it. And yeah, the more the more I've been sort of speaking to you, the more I've realised that I guess I'm quite passionate, more passionate about it maybe than I realised and can't believe how much I actually probably have to say actually on the subject. And maybe you need to say more. You can always come on another day and talk yeah. about something else. <laughs> yes, definitely. But that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Carly. Yes, thank you, Jane. See, I told you she's amazing. I've learned so much from our talk and something I've particularly took from it is how she manages autistic burnout, which is basically acknowledging it, recognising her needs and practising really robust self-care. I know personally, I don't know how it is for you, maybe you're the same, but I often have a critical voice buzzing around in my head. And when I try to take time off to sort of, you know, just recuperate, there's a little voice tells me that I'm lazy and things like that. So I found how she prioritises her needs really inspirational. So Carly, thank you for that. Now, if you're interested in the new year, Carly is going to be running an adult late identified autistic group with another therapist. And she's planning to speak more about the above, about these topics in her social media. So to follow her work, you can find her on Instagram. So go and say hi. That's at the sensitivity therapist. And on TikTok, she's at Sensitivity Therapist. And I'll put those details in the show notes so you can go and have a look there. So this is the last of the Neurodivergent Voices in Therapy mini-series. And I really hope that you found it useful. I just feel so honoured to have had such inspirational people here sharing their experiences with us. And I'd like to thank Carly, Chris, Eve and Tracy for talking with me. Personally, I've learned really a lot and I think, you know, the theme of what I've learned is all about self-care, you know, practicing self-compassion and practicing really good self-care. So I would say go and check these people out on social media and say hi. And look, thank you so much for listening to the Grow Your Private Practice show. If you found value in this content, I'd be really grateful if you could share this podcast with your therapist colleagues and friends. 
because word of mouth, as you know, is a powerful way to spread the word out. And that helps me to reach more therapists who could benefit from this content. So please take a moment to tell your friends about the show and invite them to tune in. You know, you never know how much of an impact you can make. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. And let's continue to grow together. Have a fabulous week and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And if you're ready to take action to grow your practice, check out growyourprivatepractice.co.uk. Bye for now.